Good morning, Grace. If you haven't noticed, I don't have much of a voice. So you're going to have to listen in carefully. My daughter said, you can always preach shorter. And I said, well, the people would like that, but uh, they would think something was wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Reuben, for reading the Word of God to us. Uh, I'd love to hear Reuben read. There's something magical. I still think that heaven will have a bunch of British voices. So... Uh, but we're in our passage today, <clears throat> and we're also in the Christmas season. Are you, got all your decorations up yet? Everything's ready in the house, summer, not so much. You got your Christmas tree up, you got the lights on it, um, you got, you started to make the Christmas cookies. How many have made Christmas cookies? Oh, several. Okay, wow. And you've got everything starting to plan. You've pulled out the ugly holiday sweaters. I mean, not you, your family members. Um, but we, we're getting ready for Christmas. And it's amazing because you're seeing Christmas break through into our home. It, it's, it's, it's amazing to see. And I'm reminded <clears throat> of the C.S. Lewis film and book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, and uh, I, I really enjoy his books. They're filled with so much imagery. And one of the, the greatest things about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is just how it, many of the, the elements and symbols in the, the book and the film are representative of something within Scripture. And it's, it's fascinating, really. One of the, the greatest parts of it in Narnia is when the Pevensey children go into Narnia and it's winter. It's always winter because the White Witch, who's the Satan, Satan figure, rules that realm. Aslan has gone away for a time. And uh, these Pevensey children, it was prophesied that these Pevensey, these children born of Adam, a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve, would help bring about uh, freedom, in essence, from oppression. And one of the really interesting things is that the children come in contact with Father Christmas. Now, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were good friends. And Tolkien, if you remember, wrote The Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien was really frustrated with C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis put all these elements from all different parts of literature into his film and into his book, his work. And, and Tolkien, if you're not aware, he created this whole world of The Lord of the Rings. He even created languages. He was a philologist, a linguist. He even created the Elvish language from scratch for this work. That's what Tolkien did. So he's looking at Lewis, and Lewis was taking all these figures from different pieces of literature through time, Norse mythology, contemporary, um, you know, Great Britain, all these different things, and old Roman gods and goddesses and figures. He puts it all in this work. And I thought it was fascinating because he shows all of these things pointing to the allegiance of who Christ is, the Aslan figure. And one of the really fascinating things is when these children do arrive, they encounter Father Christmas, and they were always taught and told in their brief time there that it's always winter, never Christmas. It was always winter, never Christmas, in that it's this perpetual state of, of nothingness in a way. But Father Christmas arrives, and he says, Hail Aslan, or Long Live Aslan. And, and Susan Pevensey says to him, she goes, I thought it was never Christmas here. He goes, the white witch was keeping Christmas away, but with your arrival, her power has weakened. And now Christmas is coming. It's breaking through, through you. And it's a picture 
of Christ's reign and rule, the kingdom of God, as he says in Luke 17, is within you. Or when Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. The idea is, is the kingdom of God breaks through in our lives and through us into the world. Because God has, has deemed us to be cities on a hill, lights for other people to see. So people are seeing the kingdom of God break in through your life. That's a pretty amazing concept. You know, it's been said that you, as a Christian, are the only Bible some people will ever read. So the question I have for us today is what are people reading about Jesus in your life and in our life, not only as individuals, but as a church? Can people see Jesus in us? And is the kingdom of God breaking through in us, in our lives? Today we're going to go through this passage and see that this kingdom has been inaugurated or started in Jesus. And the kingdom, though, will not reach its consummation until the time that Jesus Christ comes again the second time. So it's breaking through, but it's not until he comes back will it be seen in its entirety. And that'll be the moment when every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. It'll be a great day. It'll be a great day for those who believe. But for those who don't believe, it will be the most awful day that we can comprehend. I mean, matter of fact, we can't even comprehend. It will be incomprehensible because we will see God's wrath poured out in all of its awfulness. So the question that I have for us, though, how does the kingdom of God break into our lives? Now, I'd like us to get into this passage today. We're going to see certain elements in how the kingdom of God is breaking into our lives and questions that we need to be asking ourselves as individuals and as a church on how the kingdom of God should be breaking in. What are we looking like? What does it look like? What does it involve? What do I need to do about it? Now, as we get into this passage, as Reuben read for us, we see that Jesus gets in a boat. Now, Jesus had become sort of a celebrity by this time, and people are crowding in. All around him. I mean, everywhere he goes, there's like the paparazzi of the first century. You know, Jesus, 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 Jesus. You know, they want to touch him. They want a piece of him. You know, they if and they want healing. They want their brother-in-law to be healed. They want their mother-in-law to be healed. They they want freedom, deliverance. They they all want a piece of him. And the crowd is busting in. Now, Jesus though didn't come to primarily heal people. He didn't come primarily to alleviate their suffering. He came proclaiming the good news of freedom from sin through him. That's the primary reason he came. Everything else is secondary. All the miracles are to validate that. Jesus, time and time again, doesn't want to draw attention to the miracles. Because we have to admit, we're all attracted to the miraculous. The miraculous will draw a crowd and pump this place. But when it comes to the preaching of the word, people are not as interested. But that's what Jesus was about. So Jesus... It's becoming so, coming in on him so much that he puts in a boat and he has to go out from shore to teach this people on the beach. And he sits down and he starts to teach them in parables. Now, the question is, is what is a parable? As, as believers in Christ, we need to understand the kingdom of God breaking through into our lives involves several things. The first of all, we have to understand or be understanding 
What is the proper role of parables? We have to understand that. We have to apply these parables. What is a parable? Many different theologians, commentators, Bible teachers have a lot of different ways of describing parables. But the simplest way of describing a parable is like this. It's an earthy, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Simply put, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We're all, we all like to tell stories. We all know what it's like to tell stories with a point. I think of children, that's how children learn. I mean, you could say, like uh, my, my son does now, he starts crying because he knows when he cries, he'll get our attention, even when he's not hurt. Remember that? They cry, ah! <laughs> and they come and they smile when they see you. It's like, I got power. <laughs> I rule you. <laughs> For the next eight, 18 years, I got you. That's <laughs> what it seems like. So when the child is old enough to understand, what story do we tell him? Boy who cried wolf. Exactly. Because that story has a point. That point of the story is don't call out unless you need its time of emergency. Because when a real emergency comes, you're going to call out and no one's going to help you. So there's a point to the story. Now this story has a real big heavenly point. Now Jesus starts off, listen in, listen. There's four times in this passage that he tells them to listen, pay attention. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's his way of emphasizing what he's about to say. Now, the listen here is called, it's a second person plural imperative. He is talking to the group of people. He is, it's a command. It's active. Listen in right now. You know, it's like when you, somebody says to you, listen up, what I'm about to say. Wake up, pay attention. It's primary importance what I'm about to tell you right now. And that's what Jesus is doing. He starts off telling his, this story. Now, he tells a story about a sower going forth. And you can almost picture it. First century, it wasn't as technical. Farming wasn't as technical as it is now. But he had a bag with seed. It's in a very fertile region because he's, right, he's talking about being by the sea. A lot of crops were done right by the sea because you had water. You had good irrigation. Uh, it was great weather. It was very lush. And these guys would go out with their bag, and they would throw it on the ground. Now, he, Jesus gives an interpretation of this parable later on in the passage. An interpretation, he says, is that the seed is the word. And it's saying that this, this word is going to fall in people's lives. People are going to hear it, and this is how they're going to respond. Now, before we even look at the responses in what's called the four soils, we have to understand something. Jesus is expecting his word to be proclaimed through us. So when we, before we even talk about the responses, we have to understand that our responsibility of proclaiming the reality of God's kingdom. It is every single believer in Christ's responsibility to share Jesus Christ with those around you. It's not my job. It's not Pastor Andrew's job. In that, we, our job is to teach and preach the kingdom of God, yes, as all the elders are at our campus, at the other campus. Every, but every single Christian is called or involved as the priesthood of all believers and is given the responsibility to share Christ with their family, their friends, and their co-workers, classmates, acquaintances. We're to share the gospel. Not just share the gospel. Proclaim it. 
And in our postmodern world where authority is despised, it's not about people don't like authority. People don't like someone telling them something. We just like, hey, back off. Who are you to say that in my life? But God's word is unequivocal and unapologetic. We are to proclaim the reality of God's kingdom breaking through in Christ Jesus. The question is, is are we doing that? I mean, we can talk about a lot of things with people. I know when I first got saved, you, perhaps you were this way. I wanted to talk about everything around Christianity and because I, I thought that was more palatable for people. I talked about listening to Christian music. I talked about reading Christian books. I talked about even reading the Bible. It was all great, but I, would, I didn't focus on the person of Christ and the claims of Jesus because Jesus is the most focal point and the most controversial point of all of Christianity. Several years ago, I was on an Amtrak train witnessing to a criminal psychologist. And he says, I can accept everything about Christianity except Christ. I said, well, you have a massive problem. (laughs) Because Jesus is Christianity. He is himself the embodiment of life. He is God in the flesh who was sent to identify with us, to suffer for us, to bring us redemption of sin. So our task is to tell people about Jesus. Now, what do we tell them? I mean, we tell them the truth. We tell them not just that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We say that there's a big problem called sin. You are a sinner. I've been speaking to this Jewish man, a neighbor of mine. He's a retired professor. And... uh, We talk about Christianity, we talk about Judaism, we've been meeting together for breakfast, Uh, we'll be meeting together this next week and just speaking, and we have very similar language. We talk about all of these different elements, we can talk about Abraham in the Old Testament, we even talk about some of the same books, we can talk about he knows who Jesus is, and we come to the point of Jesus, that's where the division occurs, because he's like, Jesus is for you, you're a Gentile, I'm a Jew, that's it, it's done, but that's not true. Is because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament in which he has put his hope. And he is the one to be proclaimed. He is the one that came to pay the price for his sin and mine. And it's not just what I believe. It is the truth. Even if I didn't believe it, it doesn't mean that that stops the truth of what it is and who he is. And our job is to tell them. And I started speaking about sin. And not just... I mean, speaking about sin in general, and he was getting increasingly uncomfortable because that said the who's in and who's out. And it's not that I was in and he was out as much as I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And he has to recognize the same thing. And the more that we talked, I've heard people say, well, I try to approach Christianity objectively. Do you know it's impossible to approach Christianity objectively? Do you know why? It's impossible to approach Christianity objectively because it requires something of you. Okay, there's a debate going on right now um, in some, some aspects of scholarship. Was William Shakespeare, did he really exist? Okay, now, whether or not he did or didn't, that has no effect on my life. None whatsoever. But if Jesus Christ is God, that affects my life. So I can't approach it objectively completely because something about me will be involved in that because it's going to call for a response in my life it's requiring me to respond and we have to make sure to share that with people 
When we sow the seed, we have to say that Jesus Christ is God. We do it in a loving manner. We do it in a respectful manner. We do it in, in, a, in a manner of uh, gentleness, as First Peter says, to be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. We don't do it condescendingly. We do it in love. We do it with authority. We do it with surety. And we do it with uncompromising uh, love and integrity. We are to be proclaiming the reality of God's kingdom. Because people are no longer to be ignorant. As the book of Acts chapter 17, we can't feign ignorance and say, ignorance is bliss. The book of Acts chapter 17, verse 30 through 31 says this, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God commands it. Our duty is to respond. And then God commissions us to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything God has taught to us and told us. So our job is to tell others about who Jesus is. Not just share, as our postmodern world says, but proclaim it with authority, surety, and love. But we have, to be, we have to understand and realize there are going to be different responses to our message. That's what the kingdom of God breaking through looks like. We, under, we have to understand, our, we, as we, the kingdom of God grows in our life, we're going to grow in righteousness, forsake sin, but we're going to grow in our understanding of who God is and what his word says and how to apply it to our lives. And one of those things involves us realizing that there are going to be different responses to our message. Now, here are some of the responses. I mean, the, the scripture talks about it. You have this, the seed going forth to sow. Some falls among, off the, on the path. Satan picks it up, takes it away. Some falls among the, the rocks, so, and it gets choked, or the thorns. Some falls among the good path. So we have these different four reactions or responses. Here's the first one. There's straight-up rejection. You're going to encounter people that just straight-up reject the gospel. Now, I respect those people. I respect them. At least they're being honest with themselves and where they're at. I find people that are honest, an honest atheist is easier to talk to than a hypocritical Christian. I will take an honest atheist any day of the week than a hypocritical Christian that I have a very difficult time with. So we have to be, understand there's going to be straight-up rejection of our message. That's when Satan comes and takes it away. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. He has schemes that we are not to be ignorant of. He goes around like a roaring lion. He wants to take away what people hear, the message of who Jesus Christ is. He wants people to stay blind to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And he works in a lot of different ways to accomplish that task. But Satan steals it away right after it's heard. So we have to understand there's going to be straight up rejection. Now, here's the next one. There's going to be an initial reception. But minus discipleship or having a proper root. Plus the tribulation and persecution that comes equals rejection. 
I see this often. For whatever reason, it's bad preaching or bad theology that says, pray this prayer and you're in. You've got the fire insurance policy. You're all good to go. I meet people that have, I mean, that have a health scare in their life, and then they start making deals with God. God, I had this heart attack. I almost died. I'm going to serve you now. They get better, and then what happens? They're done. They go back to the way that they were before. Don't make deals with God. There are no deal make, there is no deal making with the creator of the universe. You either follow or you don't. There's no, I will do this, God, if. God has already shown how far he's willing to go by having his son to come and identify with us to the point of suffering, of being rejected, misunderstood, humiliated, crucified in a criminal's, uh, on a criminal's torture device for us. God was willing to step out of eternality, out of eternity, and step into time. I don't know of any other God that was willing to do that. I look at the Roman gods and goddesses. I've read, reading Homer's Iliad, and you see the gods coming in for a quick period of time. They show their stuff, and then they're out. They're not willing to suffer with his, their creation. Jesus Christ did something completely different, willing to suffer and identify with us. But we see people coming in with initial reception, but without discipleship or understanding who God is, growing in the grace of who God is, of reading and applying the word of God, without being in church and hearing the word of God preached, without being in a small group and hearing and, and discussing the word of God and how to apply it in our lives, They start off with all happy thoughts. But when trouble comes is when the rubber meets the road. Or when their old friends come back into their life. Or when their spouse, unsaved spouse, starts saying, I want the old you back. I don't like this new you. See, that's when the persecution and tribulation comes. Are you willing to pay the price for that misunderstanding? Are you willing to continue on and persevere through it? That's the hallmark attribute of a disciple is perseverance. So we hear, we see this initial reception, but without discipleship or having, excuse me, a proper root, then they will fall away. It equals rejection. We need to come alongside one another to help one another on in their walk with Jesus. Another reaction we see is in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So here it is. Initial reception. They come forward. They can cry. They can pray a prayer. can do any of that stuff. But when responsibilities cave in, And riches and the things of this world, it equals church rejection. Now, I've seen this a lot within celebrities. Names such as Britney Spears. Starts off, Christian girl. Going in to the secular world. Katy Perry, for those that are younger know who she is. She was raised by two parents that were in ministry. So you see these singers, another one named Kristen Chenoweth. She's an amazing singer on Broadway, a fabulous singer, 
She grew up Southern Baptist. At eight years old, she was singing at the Southern Baptist Convention. All of them have either left or compromised their faith to make it more acceptable with the lifestyle that they are living. So when the riches and responsibilities of life come in, you see their faith get jettisoned the first thing. Why? Because they're in an environment where, that is hostile to the gospel. And that's when I, I grieve when I see kids say, all I want to do is be famous. You don't realize what's going to happen. You don't realize the, fit, the problems that are going to occur. It breaks my heart when I hear that the number one goal for kids today is to be famous. Number one goal. They want their 15 minutes of YouTube fame. But, I mean, what value is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? See, that's what happens. Jesus is illustrating through the parable, this parable of the sower, that you can have all these things cave in, and you're going to lose your soul in the process. So we have to be on guard against all of those things. Because when all that creeps in, the responsibilities of life, and riches that crowd out the word of God. And then people think that they're self-sufficient in themselves and they don't need God anymore. I'm reminded of a church that I worked with very, very briefly in Swickley, Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh. It is home to more CEOs than any other little town in the world. It's a borough, a little village, about 4,000 people. All of these like coal and steel guys live there. A lot of the uh, athletes from Pittsburgh live there. Big mansions. I mean, unbelievable mansions. But just like in a lot of different places where you have great wealth, you have poverty. Side by side. And there was this small Baptist church. Been in this town for a hundred of years. Fifteen people. They were more of the lower rung of society. but They loved Jesus. And they wanted other people to know who Jesus was. So they went door to door in this affluent neighborhood. And the reaction they got was, by one man specifically, mansion of a house. I mean, you're talking like 45,000 square feet. I mean, this is just, I mean, unbelievable wealth that's involved here. I mean, his house is the biggest. I, I'm not sure if that was the guy they spoke to, but I know that it was a mansion they came to. And he said to them, I have everything I could possibly need. I don't need Jesus. But that's how many people in our world are today. And that's one of the reasons I'm glad for the economy the way that it is. Because I think it's waking us up for what we've been depending on. We've been depending on a lot of other things than Jesus. We've grown very comfortable. And I think God is using this to shake up his church to seek him again. And for that, I'm supremely thankful. It's hard. It's not easy. Wondering when you're going to the grocery store, how much can I afford this week? I mean, can I, I mean, you're looking at things and you're trying to decide to the penny or the dollar what you get. And you don't know if you're going to be without a job from week to week. You don't know the stresses that you're facing. Is there going to be work? Some of the guys here are in trades. There are others that you're just wondering. You know that there's somebody waiting in the wings to steal your job. It's tough. It's extremely hard. But we hold on, we persevere, we continue to testify to the greatness of who Jesus is. And we don't let the riches of this world or the responsibilities of life crowd out Jesus. 
But the best reaction that we see, we've seen straight-up rejection, we've seen initial reception twice, and that which equals rejection. But the best one is, is reception plus discipleship. This is that falls on the good soil. It equals reward. Reward. Now, those who accept the message of Christ will bear fruit. It is inevitable. Inevitable. The, and, and, and it goes like this. Take root, which means abide in Christ, and you will bear fruit. So say it with me. Take root, bear fruit. There we go. It's the easiest way to do it. Take root, bear fruit. Jesus calls this abiding in him. So the question that we have to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church, are we or have we taken root and are we bearing fruit? Are we bearing fruit? Is Christ's fruit evident in our lives? Now, it's not easy sometimes to see and measure it. We've been talking as a staff, how do we measure that? I mean, there are certain things that are easily measurable. Church attendance, small group involvement, service, those are easy to measure. There's some things that are harder to measure. Forsaking sin, growing in righteousness and holiness, your prayer life increasing, reading the word of God, telling other people about who Jesus is. These are things that we can't see, but God sees, and God will honor that. Jesus, though, clearly laid it out, what it's like to be a disciple for every single person. Every single person who is a Christian is to bear fruit. Jesus said this in John 15, 1 through 11, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself, I'm skipping ahead, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away. Thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. That's the litmus test. You want to know if you're a Christian? Are you bearing fruit? I don't care what situation you're in. You could be suffering from cancer. Glorify God in your cancer. Glorify God in whatever situation you're in. Whatever situation you find yourself, glorify God in the midst of it. And you do that by holding on and trusting in Christ. Because when people see you trusting in Christ in the midst of tragedy or trial, trouble or tribulation, you are showing that Christ is more valuable than anything else. And God is glorified in that. 
So we are to be bearing fruit. And the more that we do that, we persevere and we grow in the Lord through the process of discipleship. That involves being in church, taking in his word, praying. You will grow and there will be fruit and also be reward. So God wants us to take root, which means being discipled or growing in discipleship. It means being in a small group, growing in grace, learning what it means to tell others about who Jesus is. Now, we must be recognizing our responsibility, though, in God's work. The kingdom of God breaking through in our lives involves us saying, Lord, what have you made me to do? What do you want me to do? You've saved me for a reason. That the work of God might be displayed in me. You've created me in Christ Jesus to do good works. What do you want me to do? What's my responsibility? Well, be telling others about who Jesus is, but it's even more than that. Look at verse 27. I mean, it's a work, yes. But what does this work look like? Look at verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Now, our responsibility to tell others about Jesus, this is what the work's going to look like. may not be for you specifically on what your specific task is, but the overall view and how we can describe this work is seen right here. First of all, we have to understand this is a steadfast work. It's work. It's work. People, though, want it just like they met their future spouse. It was, we fell in love. I fell in love with Jesus. Now, anybody that's had a marriage that's endured knows falling in love doesn't last. It has to be worked at. If you and your marriage, you have to work at your marriage. And if, man, if you don't believe me, ask your wife. She will tell you and remind you to tell you, let's sit and talk. I want to share. We want to talk. We, let's get together and talk and share our lives. And you've got to work at it. And I've seen it happen time and time again, and I know you have too. You see, people that have children start off, the child changes everything. Everything's in love and the stresses of life and getting up in the middle of the night and smelling things you never smelled before, and, and getting, you never get sleep, and uh, stuff that you never thought you would ever do when you were younger, you find yourself doing with a child. And then that child grows up, and starts to grow, and becomes more needy, and takes more responsibility. And the attention for one another is very difficult then, as a husband and wife. And then that child grows up, goes to college, and then you look at your spouse, and it's like, who are you? It changed. Why? Because we didn't take the time to nourish it. We have to nourish our relationship with Jesus. And we have to work night and day. See, that's what he's doing there. Night and day, he gets up to check on it. He's sowing. He's working day and night. I grew up, my grandparents, both sets, were farmers. And I remember how hard it, my grandfather would work. My grandfather was also a pastor. And he was a full-time farmer, full-time pastor. And he would be in his tractor during harvest season at one in the morning. Lights on. He's out working. He's got to get the harvest in. It's hard work. It's not easy. It's hard work. And we have to understand, as we want to share the gospel with other people, it's hard work sharing with other people, loving them, enduring trials, growing in righteousness. It's hard work. It's a steadfast work. I think about the Apostle Paul and what he went through. Unbelievable. 
He gives a description in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 through 29. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. They threw stones at him. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I was adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I mean, remember, he didn't have a template. They were creating something brand new. And these early churches were messed up. Immorality, drunkenness, incest, conflict, lawsuits. Sounds a lot like today. In our world. In our world. He says, and apart from other things, the daily pressure on me for the anxiety of all these churches. Who is weak? I'm not weak. You think you're weak? I'm weak. Who is not made to fall? And I'm not indignant. But yet he was willing to undergo that for the kingdom of God. What are we willing to undergo for the kingdom of God? How much are we willing to be inconvenienced? How much are we willing to give up our safety? We're a society today that's overly concerned with safety. We have warning labels on everything. I mean, think about it. You that are older, you grew up in a school filled with asbestos. You drank water from a water hose. You rode a bike without anybody knowing where you were going or without a helmet. <laughs> I mean, think about it. I mean, you drank water. It's just, I think of the stuff that kids did. And I look at today, I'm like, I don't know how they live. I mean, I don't remember a car seat. I was crawling up and down the seat and around it and laying flat when I was a kid. Now, if we go anywhere, it's like, the kid's not buckled. We're all going to die. You know? It's like, what in the world? I was riding in the back of a truck pretending I was a surfer when I was five. You know? But we're so concerned with safety. You know what? The gospel is not safe. It's not safe. It's not safe for work. It's not safe at school. It's not safe at your family get-togethers. It's explosive. That's how it works. Handle with care. Handle with care. So it's a steadfast work. And we have to be willing to work steadfastly. It's also a secret work. Look at verse 27 with me. He sleeps and rises day and night, night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces fruit by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. It's a work that we don't necessarily see happening. People don't see us up all the time doing it, and we don't see the growth that is occurring apart from our eyes. He doesn't know how it grows. We don't know how it grows. I mean, we're not to be doing it out in front of everybody all the time. Jesus warned us against that for those who do their deeds of righteousness before men in order to get praise for themselves. I mean, it's in the trenches. And many of you have been doing the trenches for years. And God bless you, he's going to reward you for that. 
All those days spent doing Awana. All those days teaching children. All those days working in the nursery or changing diapers or, or helping somebody that had an automotive problem or helping someone around their house or a single mom or a widow or just people in dire trust, luck or all those things. God, it might have been done in secret, but God sees it. And God's going to bring about that to bring a yield, a harvest of righteousness. As Paul said, do not grow weary in doing good, for we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We will reap a harvest, brothers and sisters. We will reap a harvest. We must remember that. Hold on. God, the reason we do it in secret is because God likes to be the one behind it. See, God won't share his glory with another. God wants the praise for himself. And, we're, and that's not a bad thing. Because God is the only one who is supremely praiseworthy. I think of the story of Gideon, one of my favorite stories in all of the Old Testament. Gideon is called after he is hiding behind a tree <laughs> to lead the Israelites. And he starts off with an army of 32,000 people. He's called into this service. He's leading an army of 132,000 against an army of 135,000. I mean, he's severely outnumbered. And you know what God says to him? You've got too many. Tell anybody that's trembling with fear to leave. 22,000 left. Leaving him with an army of 10,000 against an army of 135,000. And he says, you still have too many because you will boast in your own power. So go down by the brook. And those who lap like a dog, he separates them and how they drink. And 300 remain to fight an army of 135,000. Why? Because God likes giving glory for himself. That's what God wants to do in our body. He might prune us. He might, he might wean us. But he does so for his own good and glory because he wants to do a greater work through us where his name is magnified, not ours. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. So it's a secret work. Now look at verse 28. The earth produces fruit. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, he's talking about grain growing up. Then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, and once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come to cut it down. Now, here's the point. God is going to make it grow. If you cast seed, it's going to have a variety of responses. But it's guaranteed to grow. It will be a successful work. If you are sowing seeds of righteousness and sharing God's word, it will accomplish the purpose for which God intended it. God has promised it. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 through 11, captures the essence of this truth. As the Lord says through Isaiah, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God will make our efforts grow. Like the sower, the growth may be slow and imperceptible, but there will be growth. 
And what you sow now, it might come to fruition years later. I don't know if you saw this today in the Washington Post. There was uh, an article I found fascinating in Germany, in the city of Koblenz. I think that's how you pronounce it. They, the, the water levels have gone down in the Rhine. And when it went down, they found something that was quite surprising. It was a bomb that was dropped in World War II. A giant bomb. I think it was like 700 pounds. Don't quote me on that, but it's huge. They had to clear out the city to disarm it because the thing was still active. Now, here's pretty fascinating. God's word has a greater activity than that. And it's got a bigger shelf life. And we can plant a seed and with the gospel, it's going to explode later. That's how powerful God's word is. So what you share with someone when they're a child, they might remember when they're 90 years old. But trust God that he will bring it forth, fruit. It will be successful either for blessing and salvation or judgment and condemnation. God's purpose will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. God's word is powerful. I shared a story a few weeks back that I wanted to share again about Spurgeon. Uh, if you remember the story, he, his sermons were printed around the world. He lived in the 19th century during his own lifetime. His words were powerful and served to touch many people, including himself. And as his biographer said, and I shared this a while back, I believe, he wrote this. He says, one of the most beautiful and positive incidents of the plagiarism of Spurgeon, people plagiarize him and, and preach his, own, his sermons, occurred in his own experience. As been noted, Spurgeon struggled with depression. His depression would even run so deep on occasion that he would begin to question his own relationship to God and if he had truly been saved. Once in such a state, he walked into a small chapel to spend an hour in worship with the people, unknown to the congregation and to the preacher as well. In the grace of God, the pastor preached one of Spurgeon's sermons on the assurance of faith. Spurgeon, deeply and profoundly touched, said that he made my handkerchief wet with my tears. As God spoke to him through the message, it gave him the full assurance of faith. The service concluded, Spurgeon went to the pastor and expressed how profoundly grateful he was for the message and how it had touched his life. The pastor asked who he might be. One can imagine the embarrassment when he found out that Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the visitor. As Charles expressed it, the pastor turned all manner of colors. He was so embarrassed. The good preacher said very sheepishly, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, that was your sermon. Spurgeon, in his typical gracious and Christ-like demeanor, replied, Yes, I know. But wasn't it gracious of the Lord to feed me with the food that I had prepared for others? Profound. That's how powerful God's word is. It will not return void. It will transform lives. It's amazing how God uses his word to transform lives. Our job is not to make people respond. God will do that. Our job is to cast the seed, that's all. As Jesus told the disciples, cast your nets. We're to cast the nets. Sow the seed. God will bring the fish in and make the other, the other seed grow. That's his work. 
The world has come a long way in modern agri- agriculture and planting techniques. I'm amazed today. Uh, my brother is in the agricultural industry. And I hear different things in conversation at how scientific farming has become. People go out used to and just throw the seed. Now you can measure how deep the seed will go and how far apart it will be. I mean, it's a science. It's amazing to me on how it's planted. But in the first century, that wasn't the case. They just threw out the seed. It was common, common to see just sowers on the coast sowing seed. Now, as we think about that and as we look at verse 21... I'm reminded that we're to be just doing this, but you know what? God is going to make our work shine. This other work, is, it's a shining work that we do. Look at verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, listen to what I'm saying. Pay attention to what you hear in verse 24. With the measure you use will be measured to you, and still more will be added. For to the one who has, more is given, or will be given. For the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, lamps were common. These lamps uh, was a little, um, kind of like a genie thing. It looked like a genie lamp in a way. And it would have oil in it, and a wick would be on the edge of it. And it would burn down. And you were to have it out on display so it would shine forth in the house. You weren't to put it under, under a basket or under a bed, but it was on a stand so everybody could see it. And as uh, one study Bible I said, and commenting on this, said this, the proclamation of the kingdom of God, his rule and his presence, is like bringing an oil lamp into a room. The coming messianic rule of God makes hidden things, hard hearts, or hidden sin apparent. God brings it to light. That's why we can't come to God objectively. Because it's going to reveal the sin in our heart. It's going to show us that we're sinners. And we have to do something about it. God's word brings all of that to life. Either, he, and his word will accomplish that for which it's been purposed, for a positive response of salvation or condemnation. And lastly, the sharing of the gospel with others is not only uh, a shining work, but it's a surprising work. It's a surprising work. Look at verse 26 through 29. God is the one who makes it grow. But look at verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. We don't know how God's word works in a life. There are those that we look at that think they'll never respond to the gospel. But God's word is proven true that he will bring it in a way that we could never possibly comprehend. Those who you think are the furthest from the gospel might be the closest. Someone once said to me, and I believe it's true, scratch a liberal and you'll find a fundamentalist underneath. I think there's some truth to that. We don't know who's going to respond. And our job is not to determine who's worthy and who's not. Our job is to simply proclaim it to tell others, to take root and bear fruit. God is the one who makes it grow. God is the one who has initiated salvation. God is the one who grants repentance that leads to life. God's spirit blows where it wills. Sometimes he works things on his own initiative, and other times, and most often times, he works through his people seeking him to help his kingdom break through 
into the lives of others. Just like in Narnia, when Father Christmas said to them that the white witch's power is weakened through you, so is the devil's weakened through you. The more that you are living and letting God's kingdom break through in your life, the more he is weakened. The more that he goes into DEFCON mode, crisis mode, code red, because he sees you sharing with other people, and he's got agents that are out there trying to stop it. You know, it's like the KGB in Russia in those 80s movies. They're always looking to crack down on something. But, and as long as you keep quiet, it's fine. We're not to keep quiet. We're to keep telling other people and not shut up about it. To always tell people, no matter what happens at our workplace, at our school, with our friends, with our family, how much are we willing to sacrifice? How much are we willing to suffer? And how much are we willing to trust God in the midst of that? And there will be suffering. There's, God's guaranteed that there's going to be suffering. Are we willing to pay that price in order for that to happen and God's kingdom to go forth? How much are we willing to endure? Because the more that we continue on, the more that we abide in him, the more that we take root, the more that we continue just going forth with seed to sow, weeping, as the Proverbs, proverb says, he who goes forth weeping with seed to sow shall come again with joy, bringing his sheaves with him. We will reap a joyous harvest one day. We need to remember that and take heart of that and hold on to that by faith. So that's what God's kingdom breaking in through our lives looks like. God transforms us from the inside out, not the outside in. He wants the heart, and as the kingdom of God is breaking through in our lives, we will begin to bear fruit. Now the question we must ask ourselves, are we taking root and are we bearing fruit? Is the kingdom of God and the life of Jesus present in you? If not, why not? Is it because you have not yet repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as Lord? Then do so today. Is it because that you've held on to your sin? Is it because you've chosen to let your earthly responsibilities and riches crowd out the message of Christ and choke it out? The only answer is repentance. God is telling us and challenging us to come to himself, to turn from our sin, to embrace him and ask him to fill us, to accomplish his purpose and his will. Let's pray. Our Father, God bless the people that are listening to my voice today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, help us to truly hear. Lord, your word is more powerful than my broken voice. And you have said that your word will accomplish the purpose for which it has been intended. Lord, we know that we must examine our lives and say, which soil are we? Lord, is, has the, the cares of this world began to be choked out? Have we let Satan come in and steal our joy? Have we caved under persecution and tribulation? Lord, give us grace, give us wisdom, and grant us the repentance that leads to life. We come to you broken and contrite knowing that without you, we are nothing. Lord, we learn within your word, unless we abide in you, we are nothing. Lord, show us how we are to live for you. Show us how we are to be testimonies in dark places for you. Show us how that we might be able to persevere in faith. Show us how we are to share Jesus with our coworker, how we might strategically tell them and proclaim Jesus' message to them. Show us how we might teach it to our children. 
Show us how we might teach it to our spouse or live it in front of them. Show us how we might share it with our classmates as we sit by, by one another in class. Show us, tell us how we might live it in the reality of our lives that your name might receive glory. Let the kingdom of God break through us that other people might see the light of you in us. Help us be the lamps on stands that are on display for others, that the secret sins of their own life and their own heart might be brought to light, that they might confess their sin. They might see their need of a Savior, repent and believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's someone here today who is not yet trusted in you, I pray that they might repent of their sin and ask you to save them, and you will save. Lord, you have promised to save all who come to you in repentance and faith. Lord, we know that we are nothing by ourselves. Lord, we are broken. We are broken vessels. Lord, please fill us. Use us. Empower us. May your spirit be powerfully evident here. Lord, though you might prune us, may it be to your glory. May your name be evident in the midst of the darkness of our lives. And Lord, please shine forth your spirit light to reveal any secret or hidden sins that are keeping people from seeing you in us. And glorify yourself in our midst. Your name might receive praise. Lord, help us to take root, to bear fruit, for the glory and honor of your name. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.